it has a huge amount to do with breaking down those cultural barriers, overcoming those heuristics, overcoming those biases. And you know, we talk about developing psychological safety, empowering people, challenge. But if you formally say, this is a space to do this, and I am expecting you to challenge me now, then you're empowering them in that moment to actively challenge you no matter what. Hello and welcome to this episode of Battling with Business with me, Gareth Tennant. And me, Chris Kitchener. In this podcast, if you've not listened before, we talk about all things teams and teamwork, leaders and leadership, culture, decision making, and all the things that make organisations tick. And today we are revisiting a topic which surprisingly we're actually going to come back to uh, rather than just talk about it endlessly. And that is the topic of red teaming uh, and wargaming. And I've, I've been looking forward to this particular topic because I think traditionally, and Gareth in a second will have you talk a little bit about red teaming and wargaming from your perspective. I think traditionally it's been seen in the slightly narrower confines of military, how the military uses this, and also in business, probably quite a narrow context, but it'd be good to explore it and maybe see if we can take it a little bit more and uh, and expand that out. So let's start. You know, you're probably the expert on this, and I think you've done a ton more of this than me. Gareth, talk to me about red teaming and wargaming. First of all, what is it? Yeah, thanks, Chris. I wouldn't say I'm an expert on it because there are people who are genuinely experts in wargaming, but I've certainly had my fair share of experiences of wargaming in a military context and I've also started to work with clients in my post-military career as a consultant taking those lessons and applying them to wargaming and red teaming in a more corporate environment. Wargaming is very much like it sounds, it is playing out different ideas and scenarios in you know, typically a competitive environment. So I first started wargaming and learning about wargaming when I first joined the military. And it is a pretty typical way of when you're planning an operation or a mission, a way of testing to make sure that you've thought about all the things that might go wrong, all the things that might happen so that you can then refine your plan and make it better. So... Just, just sort of, in my mind, the word wargaming, and we'll come on to this maybe a little bit later, includes dice and other exciting things. But actually, I think you're breaking it down to a much simpler, a simpler place to start that says, here's a plan. We're going to look, we're going to go through that plan. And part of my job is to look at the potential flaws in that plan. Almost, and I don't want to leave the witness word, take a contrary position to try and look for weaknesses or things that people haven't thought about. Yeah, exactly that. So you will have um, the people that play the blue forces or your own forces, and then you will have a team of people that will play the enemy forces. And the idea is to try and play competitively, to try and play to win so that you expose the 
potential pitfalls or potential vulnerabilities in a, a given plan. And we've talked before, we did a whole episode on heuristics and bias. And when you're planning, especially you know, under time pressure in a military operational environment, you you default a lot to sort of previous experience, you default to relying on other people's inputs and it's a very collaborative process but it is by the nature of military organization quite susceptible to groupthink. Um, we are you know all operating within a very explicit rank structure there are commanders and so you know, it's very easy to default to when the commander says this is what we're doing everybody kind of goes along with that and so it's very very useful to have a formalized process where you say stop let's take the plan and let's let's try and beat it and typically in a war game in a military environment it will be the intelligence staff within a command for the people that are experts in analyzing the enemy and the ground and the situation who will play the enemy forces and they will try and empathize uh, and get into the mindset of the adversary but also think creatively about how you would unpick that plan so i'm it's funny as we were we were preparing to sort of record this my assumption was there'd be there'd be a lot of military and then we'd sort of see how this resonates in the business world but you you we can't stop ourselves. I guess this is why we started the podcast. Immediately, you remind me of multiple sessions I've done in business where we talk about the plan for the year or the launch of a product or a thing that we're going to do. In other words, something that we think we should do for whatever reason. And the fact that all the things you talk about, sort of the suggestion, well, you know, in the military, there's rank and rank brings bias. I think you've again actually described a business example as well, because of course, while we don't have ranks in the same way, we have leaders, we have the innovators, we have the people that naturally stand up in a room. And I think if if we're very honest, and this is sort of for people listening to reflect on this, the last time that you came up with the quarterly plan or the new strategy or the whatever it was, once someone had started saying, why don't we do a thing? Actually, it's very easy to jump on the bandwagon of how do we make that, how do we do that thing, rather than actually, is that the right thing we should be doing? Or we now have a plan, let's test that plan and actually say, does it stand up? Does that give us a competitive, truly a competitive edge? Or are we going to solve a different problem? Yeah, I think you're right. And there are, I mean, there are four real reasons why you would go through a, a war game. One is because, and I guess this goes back to your, your comment about sort of dice and the ideas of, of war gaming. One is, you know, for fun. It's a, it's a form of entertainment and people do, you know, play play games you know, very much in their, in their own time. But that leads on to a, a very real and very important reason why you would do it in the workplace which is it is a good way of developing skills in individuals and teams and getting them to 
work cohesively in teams, building confidence, building professional understanding of really complex subjects, whilst getting them to explore things from perspectives that they haven't before. So you can use Wargaming as a really, really good team building and learning opportunity. The, the second the reason you would do it, which is exactly why we do it most often in, in the military, is to stress test and red team plans. So running courses of action to identify vulnerabilities, opportunities that have been missed, to build greater resilience to those plans by focusing planning activity around things that get exposed during the war game by getting somebody to think about things from an external perspective. And then the, the last reason is really to create or facilitate ideation and thinking about novel ways of using capability, novel approaches to problem solving, which won't have been thought about or possibly haven't been thought about in your kind of general running of, of the organisation. It strikes me that that one of our sort of one of the things we've we we continually return to is around trust. In a second, actually, I'm going to pull us back to talk me through what this really looks like in real life, because I think otherwise it's a bit of a fluffy thing. But just just as you've been talking about those things, that this idea of trust, I think, becomes really powerful. Why is it that we often don't don't do this when it makes absolute sense? We've talked about bias, but I think there's this sense of if I stand up and say this is a bad idea, all of a sudden I am now in the minority and all of a sudden how will people perceive me? And I've seen this, you know, in, in, in it doesn't even have to be bad situations, but it's this sense of, come on, get on board. You know, you're just, you're just being negative or you're, you know, come on, you've got to come along with it. So this concept of trust, I really love that because outside of, of sort of wargaming and red teaming, one of the things we've identified that is really critical and it's an intangible thing that, you know, there's a risk of it sounding a little bit fluffy is build a team where there is trust and trust means a safe space where you can say that is a bad idea, that is a good idea, and it is not an emotional statement. It is a statement that, for want of a better word, it, it's, it's professional and without emotion that says I want to test this. And I think it was, I think it was um, uh, General Creswell that said in, in a previous episode, one of the jobs he was told by his boss is, you are the person who I am ordering to disagree with me. Now that might sound ridiculous, but I really like that because now it's a professional duty not to be a contrarian for the sake of it, but to say, it is my role to question this. And so yeah, I, absolutely. I, I love that idea of, of sort of safety and vulnerability because I really need you to tell me when this is a bad idea. Not, yeah. I, I need that more than I need someone to agree with me. Yeah, and, and you're entirely right. It, it has a huge amount to do with breaking down those cultural barriers, overcoming those heuristics, overcoming those biases. And there's something in, you know, we talk about developing psychological safety, empowering people, challenge. But if you formally say, this is a 
a space to do this and I am expecting you to challenge me now, then you completely empower the person that's playing the red player, the red forces. And we'll get into to that and the mechanics in a moment. But you're empowering them in that moment to actively challenge you no matter what. So rather than saying, oh, I'm always looking for challenge, you know, I want to be... Um, I want to have a, a diversive team. You know, there's no monopoly on good ideas. It's still really difficult to overcome that, you know, fear of being exposed or fear of being called the NATO. But if you formally say, this is the point in the plan where we're going to throw spears at it, we're going to pick holes in it, we're going to think creatively about how, if you were a competitor, you would challenge this, then it empowers people to actively do it. And what you find is the intelligence staff within a, a military command will, you know, they'll have thought about what they would do, what their counteractions would be, and they start challenging. And then other people from that staff build on that and say, oh, that's a really good point. Yeah, I would do this. Or have we thought about X, Y, or Z? Um, because somebody started that process. And we have, a, we have a formal name for it. We call it loyal dissent. And it's this idea that you are disagreeing with senior people, leaders, commanders, bosses, but you're doing it for the betterment of the organisation. There's, there's a point, uh, you know, I'm always thinking about how this does or doesn't relate in the business world. And I, you've identified something which I can say in 17 years of doing it, I don't think I've ever seen a business do. And it's that specific point where you said, we will come up with a plan that provides a specific strategy to achieve a specific goal or outcome. Please see previous podcasts. But at no point has anyone said, I want you now to play our competitor. If we did that, what would you do? And many times over the years, I've had this sneaky feeling we talk about a strategy that's going to take six months to a year to, to, to deliver on, the immediate assumption is, well, of course, our competitors will sit there patiently waiting for us at the end to dramatically say, oh, well, I didn't expect you to do that. When, of course, that's not true. They are, in fact, particularly if, if, if you are the sort of, as it were, the larger incumbent, and often I've been in that, lucky I've been in that case, we assume they don't move and they often assume we will move. And so in other words, they are probably doing that. So I love the idea in a business perspective, the moment you've created your strategy, your approach, there's space to say, stop, what would our competition now do? Do they get to change? Do they get to see it? How do we think about it? And I, I, I think that's a really specific way, rather than just dissent with the plan, I think this is a stupid plan. No, no, I want you to pretend you are there. This is your competitive advantage. These are your skills. If we were to do X, what would you do? And could we then counter that? Absolutely. And that's why it's called a, a war game, because it's competitive and you Both play sides. to win. Yeah, well, you it, play it to win. Yeah. It, it, it's two sides of it. So let's let's go back. And I I I, I don't know whether this is a good example. But I know that the military does lots of tabletop exercises. Um, shoot, is that right? Shoot. Yep. 
Um, yep. talk, talk, Tactical talk. exercise without troops. Perfect. Talk us through that. I don't think that's the only example of wargaming, but I suspect it's one of the more common ones. What is it? How does it physically work? And actually, maybe we, we've talked about a, the principle of, of wargaming. Why is it the military does that? I, I mean, I'm cheating. I think there are some extremely practical and pragmatic reasons, but talk us through that. Talk about shoot. How does it work? Why do you do it? Firstly, a shoot and various tabletop exercises don't have to be war games. So they can just be ways of talking about courses of action, talking about how you would employ capability, which are cheaper than actually getting all of that capability out, getting soldiers out into the field, driving tanks around, flying aircraft and helicopters or whatever, and pushing icons around a digital map or pushing counters around a board as a way of saying, well, this is what I would do without having to go through the effort and the expense of doing it. But a lot of the time that is competitive because we are trying to either ideate to create new ideas, new concepts, or to test ideas and concepts in a stress test to expose as we talked about, the, the weaknesses in a plan. The, there's an important distinction between those kind of exercises and what we call a rock drill, a rehearsal of concept drill, which is where you use perhaps physical counters, simulations, or other ways of bringing to life a plan, which you would do as a, as a communication tool to make sure everybody understands the plan. Now, that's a very different process and a very different thing because your outcome there is to make sure everybody understands the plan, their part in the plan, and potentially the, the decision points where they might need to do something. They might need to recognise that something else is going to happen that's going to have a knock-on effect to them. Very, very different to this idea of wargaming where you're playing it out in order to try and win or lose. So... So come on, walk, walk us through what it looks like. Um, are there bits of paper on a table? Is there a referee? How do you brief people? What are the rules? Let's, let's walk through that just to give a bit of context, because I, I suspect a lot of this is transferable, whether it's a military exercise or whether you, you think about a plan. Yeah, absolutely. And so it, it probably isn't far off what most of, what most of the listeners are probably envisaging. You can wargame in many different ways. So you can uh, have closed games where there are very strict rules. And these will be very similar to the kind of wargames that you see people playing for, for fun as hobbies, where there are very strict rules. Um, they often involve throwing dice to add that element of luck to the proceedings. And you will play within those set rules to try and win the game. And the reason for that is to be able to do something that is repeatable, perhaps, in order to provide evidence. Whereas you can have open games where there are less rules, but it creates discussion and ideation around a concept. And what you want to try and do is have a group of people and the balance of having too many people that it becomes ineffective and not enough people that you don't create that diversity of thought is, is a careful balance but typically somewhere between six and ten players of which 
many will will be you know, within the same team. So we typically talk about blue and red. Now, I want to build on that and build a, a, a slightly more advanced war game model where we introduce new players in a moment. But typically, we're talking about us versus the enemy. And we are the blue players. The enemy are the red. And that's where the red and red teaming comes from, because red teaming is about having a challenge viewpoint, being that adversarial approach to, to problems. Interestingly, it used to be that we were the red and the enemy were the blue. And that's because throughout a large part of our history, the French have been our enemy. And they used to wear blue and we used to wear red. And then at a certain point in history, it became more appropriate for us to be the blue players and we you're, flipped it over. You're going to make Russian references here. The well, actually, comment. so there is a really interesting approach to wargaming, which comes from this idea of them and us. You know, and, and you can take that all the way back to the, the Peloponnesian Wars. You can take it back to the sort of Greco-Roman way of war, where there is an idea of us and the enemy, and we line up on a battlefield outside of a village, and there is a victor. And the word trophy comes from trophion, which was the collection of all the bodies and weapons to create a big pile at the end of the battle and the victors had the trophy and so a lot of our language comes from this idea of a contest between two sides and if you think about the cold war it was the west versus the soviet uh, it was the blue forces versus the red forces but of course actually most of our operations over the last 80 years or so have been more in line with the maoist counterinsurgency model where although we talked about you know, this conventional war being us versus the enemy, there is this idea of the counterinsurgency where there is still them and us, but we're fighting over the hearts and minds of the population. Now, what we've found is that the reality is it's slightly more complicated than that. Um, and we've slowly had to build in new players. So I, over my experience, developed a seven-actor model for how you can not necessarily play all of these characters and all these actors, but think about what their effect will be on your plan and your operations. So there is the blue force, that is your organization, your own people, the red force, which are your direct competitors, the orange forces, which are adversarial to your outcomes, to what you want to achieve, but aren't necessarily direct competitors. So in a corporate war game, for example, that might be activists who might undermine what you're doing, um, but aren't necessarily your direct competitors that you're in competition with. You have green forces. And again, that comes from sort of this idea of military war gaming, where we talk about post-national partnered forces being green where we're blue, because they're outside of your control, but they're still people that you have to work with. And of course, in a corporate world, that would be your partners, your suppliers, you know, all of the, the people that you have to get along with, you have to work with, but aren't part of your organization. Then, of course, there are always criminal actors who will try and take advantage of the complexity of whatever the situation is to build their own financial or power game through criminal activity, which is both a threat to military actors, non-operations, and to corporate ent enterprises. Then there are the population of the operating area that you're in, 
Um, and in a corporate world, that would be the population at large of which you're trying to engage customers from, you know, sell things to or whatever. And then there are all of those kind of external actors that affect the operating environment, but don't necessarily have a adversarial or a, an allied approach. They're just active in the space. So that's things like political actors, uh, media, social media, influencers who shape the environment and, and therefore change the conditions of the game, but aren't necessarily people you're competing with. Let's try and unpick that and talk about that. I think another way of what you've said is we're going to make this as real as we can make it and add dimensions to it. So each one represents a slightly different interesting dimension that you may choose or not choose to capture. So, I mean, I think that the, 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 the red blue us versus them is a simple place to start and in itself has a huge amount of value but it's by adding these different, you can keep layering in one sense complexity, but in another sense, real life to it to start playing with it. And to talk, talk to, I mean, I think this is, this is interesting because I've never participated in one of these games in, in the business world. Is there some kind, typically a relationship between size of organization, amount of time they have to do this, risk of problem, or, you know, I always, I always sort of fall back on that trope. This as well, you know, it's a huge problem. It's huge amounts of money, potentially. Therefore, we can sit in a room and we can add this complexity. Or is it simply as, you know, it could be a startup who have got half a day and actually you simply say, okay, we're going to talk about this, this person and we're going to talk about these different personas and how they impact. Is there a complexity play in there or is it you can do this with anyone? Yeah, I think you've summarised that very well. Um, so there was a chap called George E.P. Box, who, who I think was a, uh, an economist, and he once said, you know, all models are wrong, but some models are useful. And, and what we're trying to do is find the right balance of complexity that the wargaming is actually going to pull out strands of useful information from which we can then build better plans, build resilience. So what you're trying to do is find... A, a level of complexity in the model that works to, to pull out useful information without making it so complicated and so laborious that people just get lost in it. So where I talk about seven actors, they don't all necessarily have to be players. And actually, in a lot of circumstances, it's not relevant to play them all as players. What you might do is group a lot of them together. So you might say, I'm going to group my direct competitors, my adversary, like non-competitive adversaries, the activists, the campaigners, or, or whatever, whatever it is. You know, as a group, I'm going to group the political, media, social, and customer base of wider society as one group. And you might have two or three or four players. But when you talk about the size of the organization and the complexity of the game, they don't necessarily have to correlate at all. And I did a, a war game with a relatively small, you know, small to medium enterprise at the beginning of the COVID outbreak. Um, and this was a very, very small business, UK-based, typically dealing with UK clients, 
but was worried about the impact of this random Chinese virus and how it might impact on their business. Because back then, it was something happening in China. It hadn't got a name. And they said, well, what are the chances of this happening? And I said, well, you know, I'm not a virologist. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a political scientist. But we could probably whiteboard some quite clear potential outcomes and then we could play around with what might happen and so we definitely played the political actors we definitely played the non-competitive adversarial actors and at that point your medical intervention becomes a competitive player against you trying to make money as a business and what we managed to do was create a series of potential outcomes a series of decision points from which if this happens and the government make these decisions and borders get closed down or supply chains become more difficult this is what you need to do and and it gave them a a, a sort of preset set of instructions that as it turned out our worst case prediction wasn't quite as bad as actually what happened but they were far better prepared to respond to it than a lot of other businesses that were completely taken by surprise by the rapid shift in policy and society as a result of COVID-19. I, I think that's such a powerful thing. You, you said that there are many models and not all of them are right and all that kind of thing, but, but imagine this a reasonably intelligent attempt to imagine what might happen, the one thing I can pretty much assume it's going to be better than is not thinking about the problem at all. So even if you're, as you explained it, even though the, 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 the plan wasn't perfect, immediately you had oriented people in terms of how might we think about it. And if, if nothing else, I'm going to presume this was a day or a couple of days, how much how much competitive advantage does it give you against the group of people that haven't thought about that before? Well, look, absolutely. let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I always have to give an anecdote. I'm going to give my anecdote about uh, a tabletop exercise I was involved in once, and maybe that'll lead us down other paths. We'll be right back in a second. Brilliant. See you in a bit. Okay, we're back. And I think I promised to give an anecdote. And I was, I was thinking at the beginning, I've got, I've got very little to offer here. I've never done this. And it turns out, of course, I've done this, as in, we've all had experience of this. And the, the, there was maybe a couple of things I reflected on during the break. One thing that I wanted to call out was we talked about 10, 15 minutes ago, people using dice, I think we talked about that. And yep. I do think it's worth teasing that out in a second before I do my anecdote, which is where I see the value of something like that, because I can imagine people would say, love the idea of sort of thinking about my competitors, love the idea of role playing this game. Why on earth would I do dice? That sounds a bit, dare I say it, nerdy. I think the value of dice is an attempt 
to replicate sophistication and complexity in, in an analogy for real life. What do I mean? Um, in wargaming, often people, for example, will say, in a day, we can move this far typically. But it, it's not always the same because of the weather and the ground. And so I'm going to roll the dice. Typically, exactly. I can move this far between this far and this far. And the dice allows me to kind of put a bit of a bit of sort of randomness in there. So I like the idea, you know, I was thinking about how that might apply in a business that says, let's say we want to build something or react to a customer. How long typically does it take to build something? There you go. You could say, well, you know, typically it takes us between this and this. We'll roll the dice. Oh, look, it's a yes. low number. It turns out we got lucky. We had expertise in this area. Oh, it's a bigger number. It turns out it's more complex. So whether development is the right example, I just wanted to throw that in there that say, as with all of these things, you can go as simple or as complex as you want. Simple means no dice, no complexity, just sort of a thought exercise, all the way down to how do we, how much fuel do we have to carry? Oh, we've run out of fuel. What are we going to do now? All that kind of stuff. Promised an anecdote. And I may, maybe this is my attempt to sort of bring a bit of human nature into this. Well, Many... before you do, Chris, yeah, yeah. Can I can I just come back to you on that point about dice? Because you are entirely right. And what it allows you to do is hold people to account. Because of course, what a lot of the time you're doing is saying what you've just done, person X who has this particular role in the organization, has just failed. And of course, the natural reaction when you're in front of your boss and everybody no, that didn't. you work with, it went, great. Say, it went great. It would, of course, it would go great. It wouldn't fail. And what you can do is say, I'm holding the dice to account, not criticizing you. you know, you've rolled a three. You know, anything above a four was going to be success. So, so let's just play that out and see what happens. Yeah. And of course, there's nothing to stop somebody who's, who's orchestrating the game to say, let's play that out right let's go back if that hadn't been a three if that had been a five what would have happened what would have been the impact and so it it, it allows you to kind of test ideas without pointing fingers at people and saying in my mind this has happened you've rolled a dice and therefore it's it's not somebody pointing fingers well i i think this is a perfect time to almost bring it back to why are we doing this are you doing it you want to prove you're going to win that or, or lose i don't think that's the fundamental purpose of this activity it's an interesting outcome here's a plan let's test it and see if we think on balance it will work or not work i actually think the more valuable thing is how would we react how would we behave given new information or a new situation because in a sense, the whole point of a tabletop exercise or the whole, the whole point of this wargaming is to prepare you for the real world. And so yeah. the point is, once the war game finishes, you're not done. Actually, now you're going to go and do it for real life. And so what happens when you run out of fuel? Your competitor launches a competitive product that you didn't expect to come and is now all of a sudden... It's not that you have the ability to have competitive advantage. You have to somehow project against others. So I love the idea that the dice force you to practice how you would behave 
and how you would go. And in a sense, I don't care what the dice gives me. It's practice. Okay, now try again. Now do again. There's a new thing. What would you do? And all of a sudden people say, we keep saying we'd do this. I think this is a terrible idea. It's getting us deeper in a hole. Okay, if this kind of thing happened, let's not do that. Let's do something else. I think yeah. it's that sort of the learning and the practice of the behaviors of the team and how we would deal with it, which perhaps is is the higher value. I don't know what you think about. That. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think there's there's sort of three outcomes really. One is you create those new ideas where you go, oh well, hang on. If this keeps happening, why don't we do this instead? And that means everybody's thinking about new options. There's the second outcome, which is where the the organization, the group as a whole, say we seem a little bit sketchy on our answers to this bit. If this happens, what are we going to do? We seem to be, you know, pulling it out of nowhere. Stop. What we're going to do is go away and do some more analysis on that particular focused problem set. And the, and the third thing is it can create an outcome where the organisation says, we're happy with our plan. We think it's going to work, but what we also need is a contingency plan for if this event happens so that we can respond rather than panic. And so you end up with a more resilient plan, better ideas and approaches to novel challenges, potentially as well opportunities that you may have missed if you hadn't done the war game, and also a whole load of resilience and contingency built into that plan for if and when things happen, if and when scenarios. It, it, it makes me want to go and do this. I can, you know, it's that classic thing whenever we have this conversation, I can now think we're not doing this enough. We're not doing enough planning. I'm going to do my sort of anecdote right now, partly because it's, it's a fond memory, but I think it starts to take us down another road as well. So a young naive and foolish Chris Kitchener many, well now many, many years ago, nearly 35 years ago, was, was mildly interested in joining the Royal Navy. And at the time um, I met with the, the teacher who looks after careers, said, you should meet the Royal Navy chap. And I walk in the room and he says, hello, why do you want to join the Royal Navy? And I said, well, I don't know whether I do. And he said, well, I have to go. Let's carry on this conversation. I'm flying to Gibraltar for a game of tennis, by the way. That is the best recruitment line you can have. <laughs> that is very Navy, isn't it? That's, it was, and actually, this particular person, that was entirely him. He literally was going. But anyway, he said, before he left, he said, look, never, never mind the Navy thing. Would you like to go on an outward bound course? And I'm like, sure, I'll go on an outward bound course. And absolutely fantastic. They had us running around the Lake District um, building raft that sank. But the, the, the one I wanted to come to was I was, I think I must have been 15, maybe 16. So I was very young. This was, a, this was quite a big deal for me. I was in a room full of people who understood they wanted to join the Navy and were really keen. In fact, I remember there was the chief scout and someone could probably figure out who that was, but I knew chief scout was there. And one day, one afternoon, they said, we're not going to go climbing mountains. We're going to do a tabletop exercise. And the tabletop exercise was, you're in the desert. 
and uh, you have to save some people. You've got a truck. What are you going to do? And there was sort of, I seem to remember, there was five of us around the table. And it was, it was a brilliant exercise for young potential officers because the grizzled instructors knew there was no answer. There was no correct answer. Whatever you said you would do, they would explain to you why that was a terrible idea. So you would say, well, we'll take the truck, we'll go from here to here, and then we'll get some water. And they say, oh, well, that's a terrible idea because there's no water, and how do you know that? Or whatever it might be. The point was, there was no clear definitive answer. And what they would do is, you would sit around, you, would, you were given 20 minutes, and as a team, we were there to discuss our plan. And then at the end, it was quite magnificent. And by the way, you should try this just for fun, if nothing else, amusement. They would stand up and say, right, could you tell us your plan? And the nominated leader would stand up and say, this is my plan. And then, stroke of genius, they would go around individually and say, do you agree with the plan? And, you, and, and you know, it goes back to this point of trust and everyone looked left and right. And they thought, do I agree with the leader? Because being in a team is a good thing. Or do I say, they're crazy, this is the answer. And I started to have, I, I distinctly remember, I started to have suspicions. I'm not convinced there's a good solution to this. And as I watched quietly, they were, in, as someone would say, I disagree with the plan, we should do this. They would start interrogating them. And as they interrogated them, you had two choices. You could either say, hmm, that's a good point. Maybe my plan wasn't as good as I thought it was. Or you could say, I didn't mean that. I meant something else. And then they would smile and say, oh, well, what do you mean? You'd tell them that. And what happened was this particular chap who was the chief scout, you start to notice like you're the leader in the group. He started to get increasingly agitated and you could feel the rest of his team shuffling back from a little bit because rather than saying, okay, I see what's happening here. It turns out there isn't a clear plan and I'm going to look at you, Lini, I know, increasingly angry to the point where much to my surprise, he started shouting at the instructors and declaring, you're just picking on me. This is really unfair. At which point I think we all went, oh, I don't think that was the right answer. But so I, I, I haven't thought about that for many years, but I can't tell you how interesting it was to observe this and say, I don't know what the right answer is, but I know that was the wrong answer. And by the way, someone who I assumed must be a great leader, and so I would have thought I'll probably agree with them, turns out they weren't. Anyway, why did I, why did I tell that anecdote apart from sort of amuse myself with memories of falling into water in the Lake District and having people moving things around maps? It strikes me that we've talked about the conceptual implementation of wargaming. What we haven't talked about is the nature of people in wargames and people who, you know, in that case, it was someone who said, you're picking on me. There's the boss or there's the leader that says, no, you don't understand. This is going to work. The leader who doesn't trust people. So I don't know what your what your take is on this. And maybe it's this element of, it goes back to building great teams. If you've got a poor team, I suspect this could go pretty wrong. And it's both a sign of whether you've got a good team, whether there's the trust, 
but maybe it's also an, a way of helping develop those teams as well. I don't know what your, your take is in the people in, who make up these exercises and what can go right and what can go wrong. Well, one of the things we haven't talked about is how you orchestrate and manage a war game. And of course, a really important aspect of running a successful war game is not only the preparation that goes into the design, but also the orchestration of the game during play, um, the refereeing, the critical analysis of the answers that are given or the, the actions that are taken. Um, and it goes back to what I said about why do we wargame? And the really, apart from for fun, because it's entertaining and you know people do it as a hobby, there are three reasons that we would do wargaming. And one is to develop the skills and experiences of individuals and team members for better cohesion, for improving their confidence to express opinion, to ideate, to challenge, to improve their understanding of complex environments and situations. Frankly, just to say things out loud, because I think that's really important. How would you behave? I would do X. Okay, that was a that was a crazy answer. Now I'm going to practice it again. Okay, so sorry, I just wanted to throw that in because I think the act of practicing itself is really important. Sorry, please yeah. carry on. Yeah, it does, and and you end up understanding about how people view situations, and you start to see how people think about complexity. And it's really, for me, fascinating to see people develop when you take them from. You know, this is, I don't know, let's call him Joan and Emma and Steve and Bob. And typically, Joan, Emma, Steve and Bob work in an office and they do their job and they each have their role. And day to day, they do that and they deliver quite well. Take them out of those roles and say, but what happens if there's a cyber attack and you lose all your data or there's a a break-in and you know, this happens or there's a customer two, issue two one, or yeah it's gone horribly wrong absolutely there's a critical failure or the supply the supplier that you've relied on and didn't realize that you were relying on has suddenly stopped supplying put these people who are very good at their jobs they're very personable they work very well into a situation and you start to see the people that are you know, timid and shy and not very confident. You get to see the people that are extroverts, but actually not very good at critical thinking. And then over time, you see them all start to really develop, work cohesively, not to create the answer, but to test and refine answers, to develop ideas. Because with a lot of these things, like your AIB example, the reason the right answer there are just answers that have pluses and minuses pros and cons well and, and those discussions are really really valuable and it's a really say. cheap way to, you know it doesn't take a lot of resources it doesn't take a lot of cost to to bring in a facilitator and run these things and it's a really good way of developing people i think and i i, I probably should have said that the reason in my example that they were there was a problem that was not in inverted commas solvable wasn't because they were just being funny about it. They wanted to understand how we would think and how we would react under pressure. So turning this around, I mean, I think, I think what you've implied, if not said is 
this is also an excellent way to test the skills of the people in your team. Test maybe is the wrong word, but evaluate and, and understand what capacity these people have, because what you don't want to do is the first time you test them is in the real situation. Actually, yeah. you want to say, is this outgoing person useful in, a, in this scenario or do they actually shut everyone down because they're the only ones that want to talk so the manager yeah. want to talking normally or, or or does it what's what's your thought in these situations about pairing experience with inexperience because it seems to me a lot of where uh, as i've thought about this it's about a real world example in previous businesses i've taken more junior people that were building their experience and said, when we have the next issue, you will shadow me because I want you to be able to watch and participate. We won't make you do stuff, but I want you to watch. So what's your sort of thoughts on, on using this as an opportunity to, to bring experience together within experience and helping sort of both bringing diversity and also bringing people up? Well, you, you beat me to it saying diversity there because experience itself is a loaded term. And of course, we all have experience just from a differing perspective. And of course, there is definitely huge amounts of value in bringing in experience from the types of problems that you're likely to face from people that are experienced within your organization or within your sector but balancing that with people who come from a different sector or have got a different life experience to to challenge because ultimately when we're when we're starting to war game when we're starting to stress test plans and capabilities we want people to go you have always done it this way and last time you had a problem you solved it like this but the world has changed and this competitor is going to throw in this new capability or you hadn't thought about this threat vulnerability. But when I worked in a different sector, that was all we could think about. And you create these conditions where actually new challenges that you haven't thought about get discussed. So I think the balance of bringing people together who are the old sweats they know how to solve problems they know how to deal with conditions and the new blood who've got different experience actually will start to expose where those biases are really blinkering that organization's growth and development and, and adaptability to new problem sets so it's a it's a real careful balance and in the military and bringing it back to military wargaming there's clearly a command hierarchy and you've got old commanders but more and more because te technology and societies change faster and faster and faster you've got senior commanders who recognize and they have the humility to recognize that their experience when they were tactical commanders 20 years ago isn't as valid as the experience of their brigadiers or generals when they were doing war games 20 years ago and so they are reliant on the 18 year old who can bring in that cyber perspective or that social media perspective or you know the different aspects of the new challenge the new environment and it links hugely into conversations we've had about 
uh, empowerment, about vision, about complex problems. So, yeah, I think you, you absolutely nailed it. It's a balance of old experience versus new experience uh, and getting people to communicate, talk, discuss and ideate. So I think I think we're coming to the end of this one, but I maybe this one's useful to sort of summarise and wrap up. The, the, the value of red teaming and wargaming is not only to test a particular strategy or outcome, but it's also to practice how you might act in situations, almost how you might act in uncertainty as a practice. It is a way of assessing skills and people around you as you build your teams, as well as a way of building teams and bringing people through. It's also um, a way of empowering and bringing diversity into your organization, a way of building trust. This sounds like something you should do more of. And I think we've, we've talked about different levels of complexity. It feels to me like this is something that you could do in an hour with a whiteboard around a reasonably simple problem and just say, what would we do? And what would the other people do if we were going to do that? All the way through to something far more sophisticated. And, and just, uh, you know, I, I, I love the idea of something that's simple, cheap, and you can do at the drop of a hat. But I know that you've, you've run a number of these war games. Maybe a, a nice way to finish is, can you give us an example of a, of a war game you've run, how long it's taken, and maybe the outcome and the learnings from that, maybe touching on some things we talked about? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing I'll tell you, we haven't really talked about red teaming specifically. We've talked a lot about wargaming. But where you've just said there, this could be something you do you know, just with a whiteboard. Yeah, effectively, that's what red teaming is. Red teaming is just approaching a problem, a policy, a plan, a system from the perspective of somebody that wants to be adversarial and challenge the perceived wisdom. So it's, it's like a, a war game that's not formalized, not structured, but allows for loyal dissent, for challenge of perceived wisdom. War games can run from being incredibly simple, and I've done it with a printout map, a few sort of printed out icons that I've laminated and we've pushed them around a map and sat around as four or five people with notebooks and discussed it for half a day, all the way through to using simulation software to actively play a computer game where we are adversarial to each other. It's not turn-based, there's no rolling of dice, but you're using the capability, the technological capability of simulation. Both have advantages, both have disadvantages, and it depends what you're trying to achieve. But um, I think for me, the, the example I talked about earlier of a small to medium enterprise where we talked through, we took a day and we talked through the eventualities that could happen as a result of COVID-19 is probably the most tangible and useful example for, for our listeners because you know, wargaming military plans, and I've done lots of that, um, it is probably quite esoteric, whereas wargaming the 
the conditions could result from a global pandemic at a time where it wasn't yet a global pandemic gave that organization the ability to discuss the problem in advance uh, and we identified some trigger points decision points where if this happens you need to bring everybody in and make a decision if this happens this is when you're going to need to take this action and all the way through the first few months of the pandemic when there were constant changes to policy there were constant changes to um, society there were constant changes to the business environment this organization kept sending me emails and whatsapp messages to say guess what what we talked about it's happening we're now doing this we've now i've just called a board meeting because we're at you know decision point two of of that war game and that scenario you talked about where you said the worst case is x y or z well actually it's slightly worse than that who knew but we've already thought about it we've already planned you've you've, you've reminded me of there was a, a business i've worked in in the past where they talked about blue sky gray sky and black sky planning which was based more on economic potential rather than necessarily a virus. But it strikes me that there's a perfect, perfect example of that. Well, look, we've, we've been talking long enough on this one. As always, I think we've both scratched and not scratched the itch. Look, let's call it, call it a day for now. We would really, really love to engage with you and hear about your stories, your challenges, or your examples of how you've used it or haven't used it. We are on Twitter at Battling With Biz. Um, we would really love to hear from you, uh, get your feedback. We know that our listenership uh, steadily grows week on week. If you like what you've heard also, please share. Make sure that you annoy your friends and tell them to listen to this podcast as well. But for the moment, uh, thank you from me. And thank you from me, cheerio. Thanks a lot.